As Pastor Paul mentioned, if you're joining us and uh, this is your first week here, we're right in the middle of a series where we're considering the present glory of Christ, present glory of God, rather, in the person of Christ, which is a present and here and now sort of reality. It isn't that God simply just wound up the clock of creation and put it down and just let history run its course, but God is active, he's living, he's active, as is his word, present with us in all things and in all times. And God's glory is manifested to us in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ, who came, as you know, to live on earth as a man. And so we'll be using the text that we read earlier, Exodus 34, primarily verses 6 through 7, to sort of highlight who, what God's character is, who he is, and how we see that in the life of Jesus. And so God describes himself in that moment in Exodus 34. He's a, it's an encounter with Moses, and Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai, and God describes himself to Moses as the God who they're about to enter business with, enter a covenant into with. And he describes himself this way. He says, I'm a God of mercy, grace, faithfulness, kindness, long-suffering, forgiveness, righteousness. I'm a just God. I'm a personal God. So this, is, this is who I am. This is who you're dealing with, Moses, on behalf of Israel. This is the kind of God who you are about to follow. Now Moses, in a moment, he also, he, he responds to God's description of who he is, of what his character is like. He responds, as we saw, he falls to his face and he bows. Let's pick up in verse 8 and 9. Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And I wonder if it was for fear that God might change his mind. <laughs> he waited too long. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So on the one hand, God is gracious, kind, merciful, steadfast, shows compassion, forgiveness, love, and mercy. And the other people on the other end of the contract, on the other end of the covenant, are described as stiff-necked. We can't get, it, get our act together. We're rebellious. We don't have a good track record God, which is why Moses falls to his face and he says, yes, please go in the midst of us. We are stiff-necked. Pardon our iniquities, Lord. You need to understand, though, that these, this list of, of God's character, these attributes, they aren't simply just attributes only. They are attributes. If my wife were to describe me to you, uh, I hope she would be kind and gracious about that. But she would say, Andrew can be nice. <laughs> Andrew can be a good dad. He can be compassionate. He can be understanding. He can be on time. He can be all of those things. But none, none of those things all at once or fully or perfectly. And so this isn't a list of God's characteristics, things that are like God or things that God is like, but these are things that are part of God's character. This is who he is. He's a holy God. He's in another category from any other God. To whom shall we compare the Lord? I'm holy and I'm categorically other. So these aren't just characteristics, but this is the person of who God is for his people. And what we see here is in this scene, this is a, a covenant where God binds himself to his people. This is a covenant which is binding for the course of history. God says, yes, I know who you are and you know who I am and let's go. I'm going to bind myself. I'm going to yoke myself to you. A yoke is a, is a beam you would wear over your shoulders in certain parts of less developed areas of the world. That's how they carry loads. They don't have trucks or if they don't have animals, they'll, they'll yoke it. They'll hang it on the ends of the beam. And so God yokes himself. He takes our, our, ourselves, our burden, and he places it on himself. 
And so of all of these characteristics of who God is and what God is and what he's like, his holiness, there's one thing, though, that God can't do. I don't know if you knew this. It tells us in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, if there's one thing God can't do, it's he can't deny himself. That is to say that he can't be anything other than who he is, which seems self-evident, and it is. But God is who he is, and if there's one thing he'll never be, it's anything other than himself. Much like the color blue can't ever not be blue. It's blue because it's blue, by definition. If it's anything other than blue, it isn't blue anymore. So it is with God. He cannot deny himself. And I think one, one problem, one danger for you and I, is especially people who have grown up in the church or grown up going to church, growing up knowing about God or hearing about God or being in proximity with God is that our ideas of who God is are formed more by our experience or maybe by the stories we've heard or maybe by our own imagination rather than the scriptures. Some people imagine God to be a God who tolerates. And I'm reminded when I was young, we, we got a puppy and a lot of people now have puppies these days, it seems. So if you're training a puppy, you'll know what I mean. But I remember as a kid, we were training this puppy to do life indoors as well as outdoors, if you know what I mean by that. Sometimes you go outside for certain things, but those puppies don't understand the difference. And I remember training this silly puppy. My dad, in all of his frustration and anger, had had enough. And so he, he would grab this dog, this little puppy, by the back of the head and he would just hold his face in the accident hoping that I don't recommend this by the way this is his his approach that maybe we could scare the dog to to right behavior please don't phone us in <laughs> this is a long time ago okay <laughs> but some people view God that way is that God is interested in our character if we could just get our act together he would then love us or he would then show us the kindness that is described here for us he would show us that compassion once we get our act together like a puppy who's learning to go indoors and outdoors. But the scriptures have a very different idea of, or they tell us very differently what God wants from us. You see, God isn't only interested in our good behavior and our obedience. He's interested in our obedience, but he's interested in our obedience being motivated by our affections or our love for him. He doesn't just want a sacrifice. He doesn't just want ritual, but he wants our hearts. He wants to know you and he wants to know his people. And so the good news for us is that God is our help. God is our strength because he's compassionate. We see that compassion, our, the way we'll move forward with our, the rest of our time this morning is that we'll see that God, his heartbeat is one of compassion. And we'll see that through the person of Christ is our strength. He is our sympathy. Let's look at the first of those, the fact that God's heartbeat is compassion. Well, what is compassion? Some of these different translations, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading, that first verse in Exodus 34 that we're reading in verse 6 might say merciful and kind, <clears throat> might say compassionate, gracious. These are, in the English language, kind of synonymous. But it really invokes a, a kind of language of, of, of a mother. And if you're a mother or a father, but particularly if you're a mother, you'll know what compassion is by virtue of the fact that you're a mother, that you've nursed a child that you would do anything for that child. I remember when our kids were sick, at various times they would get a fever in the middle of the night, and I'm kind of like, just go to bed, like they'll, it'll go away. But my wife will do anything to just get rid of the fever. Nothing, will, seems, to, nothing seems to work, but the compassion of a mother will do anything in that moment for their child. I have a friend who's worked as a defense lawyer with 
pretty high-level crimes. And he said it's interesting that when, a, when someone who's, who's uh, being charged with a crime is on trial, he said there's only two people in the whole world who show compassion to even those people. He said the first is me, the defense lawyer, and the second one is their mom. <laughs> their mom will always have compassion on them. Their mom will always love them, no matter what. Even if they are facing a life sentence or for whatever it might be. Even if they've made a series of bad decisions, a mother's compassion is like no other. And in Isaiah 49, there's a, there, there's a, there's a metaphor here for us where God says, Can a mother forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. In other words, the kind of compassion that a mother has for her child whether he's a grown man about to be sentenced to prison or an infant in her arms with a fever in the middle of the night or with a sickness that knows no cure, that kind of compassion is the sort of love that God has for his people. It doesn't, doesn't end. It's unrelenting. He would do anything for you. Merciful and gracious is what the text tells us, but I will bring judgment Upon the guilty. So, which is it? Is God gracious and kind and compassionate and nice and warm and fuzzy? Or is God just? Because He tells us He will bring iniquity on those who sin against Him. And the answer is yes, God is, God is both of those things. They're not at odds with one another. Let me clarify something that is given to us a few chapters earlier in Exodus chapter 20. The text we're reading in Exodus chapter 34 is actually the second time that this, this conversation has taken place between God and Moses where the Ten Commandments are being given. But on the first account in Exodus chapter 20, we see the same thing that God des- describes himself to Moses this way. In issuing him the commandments, the first, of course, as you know, is you shall have no other gods before me. The second is that you shall not make for yourself a carved idol or any kind of image that you, that you should worship another God that you've actually made with your hands. And in verse 5 of Exodus 20, you needn't turn there, but he says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who would love me and keep my commandments. You see, there's a contrast those who would turn away from God, those who would hate God, they'll be visited with iniquity to the third and the fourth generation. But by contrast, to those who love the Lord and keep his commandments, he will show steadfast love for a thousand generations. Steadfast love and kindness and compassion. Moses got it right. And if you read through the rest of Exodus and the rest of the scriptures, Moses absolutely nailed it that Israel's biggest problem is their stiff-neckedness that they would turn away to other things, that they would hate God, that they would rebel against him. In fact, while Moses is up doing this ceremony with God, receiving the commandments, and God's giving him the law, do you know what's happening down below? Well, they're getting impatient. They're like, where did he go? It's on day, what are we, 39 now. Moses is still not back. We need someone to worship. We need something to worship. And so Aaron says, gather your rings and your earrings and all your gold, and I have an idea. I'll make a little calf. And we'll just prop this thing up and that'll be who we worship, who we give our affections to. And so while this ceremony is taking place on the top of Mount Sinai, they're violating the first two commandments that God's just given them. This is a disgrace before the Lord. And when Moses comes down, the nation of Israel sees his indignation, his wrath, and their shame. And so God's 
greatest solution to their greatest problem, their unfaithfulness, is his compassion and steadfast love. It says in Psalm 103 that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who love him. You see, God's jealous, which for you and I has a kind of a negative connotation to it because it means you envy somebody or you want what they have. But God's not that kind of jealous. When God says God's jealous, it means that he's exclusive. He wants you and only you, and he wants you to only want him and no one else. He wants the affections of your heart. God is a jealous God. But when their hearts turn away, God meets them with compassion every time. Perhaps I'll illustrate it this way. Let's turn to, let's consider for a moment anyway, the book of Hosea. Right at the beginning of the book of Hosea, we get a really stark, a really poignant metaphor of the kind of unfaithfulness that Israel has towards their God. Hosea, very first, uh, first chapter, verse two. The Lord says to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife from whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits a great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, I don't necessarily think the, the text suggests that Gomer, who he goes and gets as a wife, was a prostitute. But it means that she was unfaithful. So God tells Hosea, go get yourself a wife. Maybe uh, the, the kind of wife that you might not otherwise choose for yourself. Someone who has a poor track record of being faithful to someone. Go get that woman, Gomer, and call her your wife. And so he does, he obeys, and they have a child together. And then they have a second and a third child. But we don't know that these second and third child, it certainly seems like they're not actually Hosea's children. And so by chapter three, we see that Gomer once again is being loved by another man and she's gone off into adultery. She's defiled their marriage. Her poor track record has come back once again. But God tells Hosea to pursue her, to go and buy her back. So we see in Hosea three, there's an exchange. He redeems his wife out of her adultery, out of her infidelity, graciously and and in in longing pursuit buys her back again. Why? Well, because God tells us this is an image, this is a symbol. The land is committing a great whoredom. You guys have turned to other things and uses a defiled marriage as an image for the kind of unfaithfulness, fickle heart, wandering response that Israel has towards God. A little bit later in the book of Hosea, chapter 11, we see, it, we see another image, back to the metaphor of parenthood. Hosea, God through Hosea rather, uses this metaphor. Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. This is when they were in exile, when they were divided and in exile. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. And then he says this, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? 
How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? These two cities, Adma and Zeboim, were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis. He says, how can I do that to you? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I, again, I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. You see, he says, I'm not like you. This is how you might respond, but I'm not like you. I'm not a man. I'm God, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. He says, I'm a just God, but I'm a compassionate God. So the point is this, that he draws himself, he draws them rather, and us, as often as we turn away, he draws us back to himself, almost to, the, to a rhythm. As often as we wander, he draws them back. As often as they stray away, he buys them back to the tempo of their rebellion because God is a God of compassion and he'll do anything for his children. And we see this most vividly, most presently, most fully demonstrated to us in the person of Jesus Christ. When retribution for unfaithfulness is owed, because God is just, okay, a debt can't just go away. He can't just turn his eye on wickedness and sin and evil. There has to be a payment. There has to be an atonement for that sin. And in the, under the Old Testament law and under the Old Testament covenants, there was, a, there was a procedure, there was a process by which your sins could be atoned for through the shedding of blood of an animal, a sacrifice to God. But God himself had a plan to save all people for all time, once and for all. That was by a perfect and complete sacrifice himself. He descended to earth, putting on a, a body is the language, that's what incarnation means, is some, something with skin on, basically. God sent himself through the person of Jesus to manifest God's holiness, God's glory, his compassion, his love, and his mercy to redeem all of history, which includes you and I, once and for all, so that there would be no more atonement for sin. Jesus was the final atonement. And he's a sympathetic kind of God, which is our second point this morning. He's our strength because he's sympathetic. He relates to us. He knows us. A story you hopefully all know well is in John chapter 8, where Jesus is, it says that Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching as often as was his custom. People gathered around to see what this guy was all about. And some people would believe his teaching and their eyes were opened and other people would have their eyes blinded and they were living in darkness. But Jesus is teaching one morning at the temple in John chapter 8 and suddenly there's a great commotion. There's a group of Pharisees and scribes who are religious leaders. They're basically police officers for the Jewish faith. They're enforcers, okay? They're very righteous. And they grab this woman and they throw her in the middle and they kind of make a circle around is sort of the scene that we see. And they throw this woman in the midst and they tell Jesus, hey, we've just caught this woman in the act of adultery just, just a second ago. And here she is. What, what should we do? The law of Moses says that we should stone her to death. And there they are surrounded. And you can just picture the Pharisees and scribes ready to go with their fists armed, locked and loaded, ready to strike. And this woman standing there in her shame with her accusers all around probably is a little afraid, I would imagine, but they put Jesus on the spot looking to not only make a spectacle of this woman, but also to trap Jesus and make a spectacle of him. What are you going to do? Are you going to disobey the law of Moses, Jesus? Are you? 
So Jesus takes a moment and I love how he just sort of blows apart these categories. They present to Jesus two options. Which is it? This or this? And Jesus says no. (laughs) So he stoops down and it says that he draws in the sand and I don't know what he drew. I don't know what he wrote. But in that moment that he was drawing in the sand, he says something remarkable. He says, whomever among you is without sin, please be the first to cast the first stone. Do it. He of you who is without sin, be the first. And something remarkable happens. I think there's a moment of introspection from all of those gathered around and it says that one by one, they just slowly walked away. They slowly disappeared. And there Jesus is kneeling down on the ground, drawing once again and he looks up to this woman And there's no one present at this point, just him and her. And he says to her in this precious moment, Jesus, the only one who rightfully could have thrown a stone, who was without sin, another one who knew what it was like to be accused, to be trapped, to be hated, to have people who want his head, says to her woman in verse 10, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, Jesus sets this woman free. He knows the shame. He knows the feeling. He knows her history. She doesn't need to say anything more. She doesn't need to repent. Jesus knows seething accusations. And in that moment, he tells her, go. You're not condemned. Your accusers are gone. Go and sin no more. He sets her free. He shows sympathy, compassion, kindness, and he buys her back. And later he would buy her back and me back and you back with his own shed blood because he would do anything for us. And he did. I think when you hear that and when I hear that, my response is that, yeah, that's, that's great. I love that. That becomes familiar to me, though. I've, I've heard that before. I know this text. I know who Jesus is. I think I do. But I don't know if Jesus really knows me. I don't know if he really knows what's going on. We deceive ourselves in thinking that Jesus doesn't really know what we're going through because let's face it, there's a lot of people in our lives, even our own spouses or our closest friends and family members don't necessarily know the full depths of who we are or what we're feeling in every moment. But don't kid yourself. Jesus absolutely knows you. He knows what you're going through. Let's look at our text, Hebrews 4, verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it's like to be you. Tempted in every way as we are. Lived on the same earth as you did. Felt the same hunger and tiredness and frustration as you do. He's our high priest, which means this. A priest in the Old Testament is someone who represents the people before God. He has to be one of them. So a high priest would be appointed to lead the the, the people before God. They would make an atonement for them. They would make sacrifices. He would give gifts on behalf of the people as their representative. Kind of like our parliament. We have a leader. He represents all of us. Jesus had to be one of us in order to represent all of us. Yet, he wasn't just an ordinary man, was he? Because if he was just an ordinary man, the Christian faith falls apart quite quickly. Because any ordinary man's life would not be enough to be an atonement for sins. It would just be perhaps a homicide. 
But verse 1 and 2 of the next chapter in Hebrews 5 say, For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, get this, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He knows what it's like to be you. He had to be one of us. His full humanity means he experienced everything that this human human temporary life has to offer. But he was also fully divine. He was fully God, fully man. And things fall apart quickly if you say, well, Jesus was only appeared to be man, but he was just really God. He was floating around with a, with a cloak that, of humanity. Well, no, not true. He was fully human, fully God. Well, no, he, he would switch. No, he didn't switch. He had to be both. We call this the hypostatic union, this unity of divinity and humanity. And here's what that accomplishes for us. The fact that Christ was a human matters. The the fact that Christ was born into this world matters. Because the same response he has to the woman who is here to condemn you, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, is the same response that he has for you and I. He can silence our accusers and wipe away our debt because his life was sufficient for you and I. Let me explain it to you this way. A few chapters earlier in John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. A story maybe you know well. And the next morning, the crowds, they're they're trying to find him. Jesus went away. It says he crossed the sea. And the next morning, they come and find him. And they're like, Jesus, hey, we found you. Do that again. That was awesome. And he says this, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Did you know that whoever comes to Jesus will not be turned away? No matter what you're facing, Jesus will embrace you. That verse, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, is from the English Standard Version. But let's go back a few centuries. If we were here in the 1600s, we would have all had the King James Version, which says this, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And that's strange English for us, but the phrase no wise is an emphasis. It means never. No, never. I will never cast you out if you come to me, Jesus says. I'm reading a book currently called Gentle and Lowly. And in this book, the author references back to the work of John Bunyan, who wrote a book in the 1600s, 1678, called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And I'd like to share a a small excerpt of that with you on which John Bunyan reflects on this phrase, he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. He says this, they that are coming to Jesus are oftentimes heartily afraid that Jesus Christ will not receive them. And I think he's right. Sometimes we hang our heads in shame and we, we don't come to Christ because we don't know for sure that he'll receive us. For this word in no wise cuts the throat of all objections and it was dropped by the Lord Jesus for that very end and to help the faith that is mixed with unbelief. So we have faith, but we need to actually believe. According to John Bunyan, this this, uh, phrase in no wise will will cut, cut the throat of all those objections. And he goes on. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. 
But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all of my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against the light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. And he concludes with this, the promise was provided to answer all objections and does answer them all. The fact that Jesus will receive you. He's gentle and lowly and sympathetic and kind and compassionate. And he's not going to hold your face in your mistakes. Like the woman at, at, at that, that morning who was just caught in the very act, which also happens to be a, a profound metaphor of our relationship to Christ as adulterers, spiritual adulterers. His response is the same. No, he doesn't condemn us. He sets us Sets us go. He lets us be free. He won't cast you out because he'll do anything for you. It says this in our text this morning, the following verse, verse 16 of Hebrews 4. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, that we may receive compassion, sympathy, and find grace and to help in the time of need. You see, Jesus Christ knows what it's like to be you. He knows everything about you and he welcomes you back and wants you to draw near to him like God repeatedly God the father repeatedly welcomes back his people Israel from their wandering a few things happen when we draw near to Christ we encounter the forgiveness of Christ who embraces us with his never-ending love who experiences his forgiveness we when we draw near to Christ we encounter the peace of Christ who stills the, stor the stormy seas of anxiety and fear and worry in your heart. When we draw near to Christ, we encounter the authority of Christ who vindicates us from all of our sin, clears our record, silences our accusers. We experience the compassion and the mercy of Christ who declares us righteous before the King, before God, who's removed our guilt and placed it on himself. We encounter the compassion of Christ when we draw near to him and the compassion is that Christ became light to those who are walking in darkness. Have you ever tried to walk in darkness in your house or in a, on a path without a light? It's the kind of light Christ came to be. And finally, we encounter the sympathy of Christ who himself has suffered all things that we wouldn't be left to despair. You see, he stood in our place. He stood in my place and he stood in your place because that's the kind of God he is, unrelenting, compassionate, steadfast love. There's nothing you can do to run from it. In this same book I'm reading, he tells a story, he uses an image where he's walking, this author, he's, he's got young kids and he's walking across um, a, a roadway, a parking lot, holding the hand of his son. And the son thinks he's holding on to the father, but really it's the father who's holding on to the son. And if the son tries to get away, the father's grip can't be broken because the father has, loves his son and won't let him go. It's the kind of love and kind of security we have in God that even when we try to run away, God will receive us and welcome us back because that's who he is. Let me pray. Father, what a joy it is, what a gift it is to know that you aren't high above waiting for us to get our act together. 
But Lord, you're here, you're present. And Lord, you're compassionate and you draw us back to you. You you woo us back. You buy us back from our infidelity, from our idolatry and our adultery. Lord, help bind us like that hymn says, bind our wandering hearts to you. Moses nailed it when he said that we're we're fickle. We're stiff-necked. But Lord, I pray that your compassion and and graciousness would never run out, Lord, that we, in time, through the refining work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, would bind us back to you, Lord, that we wouldn't run to other things, that we wouldn't make ourselves our own idols, that we wouldn't make what other people think about us idols, that we wouldn't make financial security an idol. Lord, help us to turn to you that the only thing we idolize, Lord, is is you. That you would rise high above, that we would compare you to nothing else, that we would truly treasure, treasure you, our God and King. So Lord, help us in all of these things, I pray. Amen.